Section 17 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 11. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dick Bourgeois Doyle. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 11, Section 17. Excerpts by Alphonse Daudet, Part 1. The Two Tartarins, from Tartarin of Tarascon. Answer me, you will say, how the mischief is it that Tartarin of Tarascon never left Tarascon, with all his mania for adventure, need of powerful sensations, and folly about travel, rides, and journeys from the pole to the equator? For that is a fact. Up to the age of five and forty, the dreadless Tarasconian had never once slept outside his own room. He had not even taken that obligatory trip to Marseille, which every sound Provençal makes upon coming of age. The most of his knowledge included Beaucaire, and yet that's not far from Tarascon, there being merely the bridge to go over. Unfortunately, this rascally bridge has so often been blown away by the gales. It is so long and frail, and the Rhone has such a width at this spot that, well, faith, you understand, Tartarin of Tarascon preferred terra firma. We are afraid we must make a clean breast of it. In our hero, there were two very distinct characters. Some father of the church has said, I feel there are two men in me. He would have spoken truly in saying this about Tartarin, who carried in his frame the soul of Don Quixote, the same chivalric impulses, heroic ideal, and crankiness for the grandiose and romantic. But worse is the luck, he had not the body of the celebrated Hidalgo, that thin and meager apology for a body on which material life failed to take a hold, one that could get through twenty nights without its breastplate being unbuckled and forty-eight hours on a handful of rice. On the contrary, Tartarin's body was a stout, honest bully of a body, very fat, very weighty, most sensual, and fond of coddling, highly touchy, full of low-class appetite and homely requirements. The short, paunchy body on stumps of the immortal Sancho Panza. Don Quixote and Sancho Panza in the one same man. You will readily comprehend what a cat-and-dog couple they made, what strife, what clapper clawing. Oh, the fine dialogue for Lucien or Saint Evermont to write between the two Tartarins, Quixote Tartarin, Sancho Tartarin. Quixote Tartarin firing up on the stories of Gustave Aymar and shouting up and at him, and Sancho Tartarin thinking only of the rheumatics ahead and murmuring, I mean to stay at home. The duet. Quixote Tartarin, highly excited. Cover yourself with glory, Tartarin. Sancho Tartarin, quite calmly. Tartarin, cover yourself with flannel. Quixote Tartarin, still more excitedly. Oh, for the terrible double-barreled rifle. Oh, for bowie knives, lassoes, and moccasins. Sancho Tartarin, still more calmly. Oh, for the thick-knitted waistcoats and warm kneecaps. Oh, for the welcome padded caps with ear flaps. Quixote Tartarin, above all self-control. A battle-axe, fetch me a battle-axe. Sancho Tartarin, ringing up the maid. 
Now then, Jeanette, do bring up that chocolate. Whereupon Jeanette would appear with an unusually good cup of chocolate, just right in warmth, sweetly smelling, and with the play of light and watered silk upon its unctuous surface, and with succulent grilled steak flavored with anise seed, which would set Central Tartarin off on the broad grin and into a laugh that drowned the shouts of Quixote Tartarin. Thus it came about that Tartarin of Tarascon never had left Tarascon. Of mental mirage as distinguished from lying from Tartarin of Tarascon. Under one conjunction of circumstances, Tartarin did, however, once almost start out upon a great voyage. The three brothers, Garcio Camus, natives of Tarascon, established in business at Shanghai, offered him the managership of one of their branches there. This undoubtedly presented the kind of life he hankered after. Plenty of active business, a whole army of understrappers to order about, and connections with Russia, Persia, Turkey, and Asia, in short, to be a merchant prince. In Tartarin's mouth, the title of merchant prince thundered out as something stunning. The house of Garcio Camus had the further advantage of sometimes being favored with a call from the Tartars. Then the doors would be slammed shut, all the clerks flew to arms, up ran the consular flag, and zits, fit, bang, out of the windows upon the Tartars. I need not tell you with what enthusiasm Quixote Tartarin clutched this proposition. Sad to say, Sancho Tartarin did not see it in the same light, and as he was the stronger party, it never came to anything. But in the town, there was much talk about it. Would he go, or would he not? I'll lay he will, and I'll wager he won't. It was the event of the week. In the upshot, Tartarin did not depart, but the matter redounded to his credit nonetheless. Going or not going to Shanghai was all one to Tarascon. Tartarin's journey was so much talked about that people got to believe he had done it and returned, and at the club in the evening members would actually ask for information on life in Shanghai, the manners and customs and climate, about opium and commerce. Deeply read up, Tartarin would graciously furnish the particulars desired, and in the end, the good fellow was not quite sure himself about not having gone to Shanghai, so that after relating for the hundredth time how the Tartars came down on the trading post, it would most naturally happen him to add. And then I made my men take up arms and hoist the consular flag, and zits fit bang out of the windows upon the Tartars. On hearing this, the whole club would quiver. But according to that, this Tartaran of yours is an awful liar. No, no, a thousand times over. No, Tartaran is no liar. But the man ought to know that he has never been to Shanghai. Why, of course he knows that. But still, but still, you see, mark that. It is high time for the law to be laid down once for all on the reputation as drawers of the long bow which northerners fling at southerners. There are no Baron Munchausens in the south of France, neither at Nîmes nor Marseille, Toulouse nor Tarascon. The southerner does not deceive, but is self-deceived. He does not always tell the cold-drawn truth, but he believes he does. His falsehood is not falsehood, but a kind of mental mirage. Yes, purely mirage. 
The better to follow me, you should actually follow me into the south, and you will see I am right. You have only to look at that Lucifer's own country, where the sun transmogrifies everything and magnifies it beyond life size. The little hills of Provence are no bigger than the Butte Montmartre, but they will loom up like the Rocky Mountains. The square house at Nîmes, a mere model to put on your sideboard, will seem grander than St. Peter's. You will see, in brief, the only exaggerator in the South is Old Soul, for he does enlarge everything he touches. What was Sparta in its days of splendor? A pitiful hamlet. What was Athens? At most, a second-class town. And yet, in history, both appear to us as enormous cities. This is a sample of what the sun can do. Are you going to be astonished after this that the same sun falling upon Tarascon should have made of an ex-captain in the army clothing factory like Bravida, the brave commandant, of a sprout, an Indian fig tree, and of a man who had missed going to Shanghai, one who had been there? The Death of the Dauphin from Letters from My Windmill The little Dauphin is ill. The little Dauphin will die. In all the churches of the kingdom, the Holy Sacrament is laid ready day and night, and tapers are burning for the recovery of the royal child. The streets of the old town are sad and silent. The bells ring no more. The carriages are driven very slowly. The curious townspeople are gathered just outside the palace, and are staring in through the grating of the gates at the guards, with their golden helmets, who walk the court with an important air. The entire castle is in a state of anxiety. The chamberlains and majordomos go up and down the staircase and run through the marble halls. The galleries are filled with pages and courtiers in silk clothing who go from group to group collecting later news in a low voice. On the large porches can be seen the ladies of honor bathed in tears, bowing their heads and wiping their eyes with pretty embroidered handkerchiefs. In the orangerie is a numerous assembly of doctors in long robes. One can see them through the panes, gesticulating in their long sleeves and shaking their wigs knowingly. The little Dauphin's tutor and squire are waiting before the door, anxious for the decision of the faculty. Scullions pass by without saluting them. The squire swears like a pagan. The tutor recites verses from Horace. And during this time, down by the stables, one can hear a long plaintive neighing. It is the Dauphin's little sorrel pony, whom the grooms are neglecting and who calls sadly from his empty manger. And the king, where is his majesty the king? The king has shut himself up in a room in a remote part of the castle. Their majesties do not like to be seen weeping, but the queen, that is different. Seated by the little prince's pillow, her beautiful face bathed in tears, she sobs bitterly before everyone, just as a peasant mother would. In his lace crib is the little Dauphin, whiter than the cushions on which he reposes with closed eyelids. They think he is sleeping, but no, the little Dauphin does not sleep. He turns toward his mother, and seeing that she weeps, he says to her, Madame, my queen, why do you weep? Do you think truly that I am going to die? The queen wishes to reply, but sobs prevent her speaking. Pray do not cry, madame, my queen. You forget that I am the Dauphin, 
and dauphins cannot die thus. The queen sobs more bitterly still, and the little dauphin begins to be frightened. Hola, he says. I do not wish to have death come and take me, and I shall know how to prevent his coming here. Bring forth forty lancers, our strongest, to mount guard around our bed. A hundred cannon, night and day, torches lighted beneath our windows. And unhappy death, if he dares to approach us then, the queen gives a sign to please the royal child. Forthwith, one can hear heavy cannon being rolled across the courtyard, and forty soldiers, halberds in hand, come and range themselves around the room. They are veterans with gray mustaches. The little dauphin claps his hands feebly as he sees them, and recognizing one, he calls him by name, Lorraine, Lorraine. The old soldier takes a step toward the bed. I love you well, my good Lorraine. Let me see your big sword. If death comes to take me, we must kill him, must we not? Lorraine replies, yes, Monsignor, as the big tears run down his bronze cheeks. At this moment, the chaplain approaches the little Dauphin and talks to him for some time in a low tone, showing him a crucifix. The little Dauphin listens with an astonished air, then suddenly interrupting. I understand well what you say, Monsieur l'Abbé, but after all, could not my little friend Beppo die in my place if we should give him a great deal of money? The chaplain continues talking to him in a low voice, and the little Dauphin looks more and more astonished. When the chaplain has finished, the little Dauphin resumes with a heavy sigh. All that you tell me is very sad, Monsieur l'Abbé, but one thing consoles me. Up there, in the paradise of stars, I shall still be the Dauphin. I know that our good God is my cousin and would not fail to treat me according to my rank. Then he adds, turning to his mother, I have my finest garments brought my ermine cloak and velvet slippers. I wish to array myself for the angels and enter paradise dressed as a dauphin. A third time the chaplain bends over the little prince and talks a long time in whispering tones. The royal child interrupts him in anger in the midst of his discourse and cries, Then it is no use to be dauphin. It is nothing at all. And not wishing to hear more, he turns toward the wall, weeping. Translation of Mary Corey. Jack is invited to take up a profession from Jack. Do you hear, Jack? Resumed D'Argenton with flashing eyes and outstretched arm. In four years, you will be a good workman. That is to say, the noblest, grandest thing that can exist in this world of slavery and servitude. In four years, you will be that sacred, venerated thing a good workman. Yes, indeed, he heard it, a good workman. Only he was bewildered and was trying to understand. The child had seen workmen in Paris. There were some who lived in the Passage des Douze Maisons, and not far from the Genese there was a factory, from which he often watched them as they left work at about six o'clock. A crowd of dirty-looking men with their blouses all stained with oil and their rough hands blackened and deformed by work. The idea that he would have to wear a blouse struck him at once. He remembered the tone of contempt with which his mother would say, those workmen, men in blouses. The care she took in the streets to avoid the contact of their soiled garments. Labassin's fine speeches on the duties and influence of the working man in the 19th century attenuated and contradicted 
It is true, these vague impressions. But what he did understand, and that most clearly and bitterly, was that he must go away, leave the forest whose treetops he saw from the window, leave the revals, leave his mother, his mother whom he had recovered at the cost of so much pain and whom he loved so tenderly. What on earth was she doing at that window all this time, seeming so indifferent to all that was going on around her? Within the last few minutes, however, she had lost her immovable indifference. A convulsive shudder seemed to shake her from head to foot, and the hand she held over her eyes closed over them as if she were hiding tears. Was it then so sad a sight that she beheld yonder in the country, on the far horizon where the sun sets, and where so many dreams, so many illusions, so many loves and passions sink and disappear, never to return? Then I shall have to go away, inquired the child in a smothered voice, and the automatic air of one who lets his thoughts speak, the one thought that absorbed him. At this artless question, all the members of the tribunal looked at each other with a smile of pity. But over there at the window, a great sob was heard. We shall start in a week, my lad, answered Labassinde briskly. I have not seen my brother for a long time. I shall avail myself of this opportunity to renew my acquaintance with the fire of my old forge by Jove. As he spoke, he turned back his sleeve, distending the muscles of his brawny, hairy, tattooed arm, till they looked ready to burst. He is superb, said Dr. Hirsch. D'Argentan, however, who did not lose sight of the sobbing woman standing at the window, had an absent air and a terrible frown gathering on his brow. You can go, Jack, he said to the child, and prepare to start in a week. Jack went downstairs, dazed and stupefied, repeating to himself, in a week, in a week. The street door was open. He rushed out, bareheaded, just as he was, dashed through the village to the house of his friends, and meeting the doctor, who was just going out, informed him in a few words of what had taken place. Monsieur Rivals was indignant. A workman? They want to make a workman out of you? Is that what they call looking after your prospects in life? Wait a moment. I am going to speak myself to Monsieur, your stepfather. The villagers who saw them pass by, a worthy doctor gesticulating and talking out loud, and little Jack, bareheaded and breathless from running, said, There is certainly someone very ill at Les Olnettes. No one was ill, most assuredly. When the doctor arrived, they were sitting down to the table. For on account of the capricious appetite of the master of the house, and as in all places where ennui reigned supreme, the hours for the meals were constantly being changed. The faces around were cheerful. Charlotte could even be heard humming on the stairs as she came down from her room. I should like to say a word to you, Monsieur d'Argentan said old Rivals with quivering lips. The poet twirled his mustache. Well, doctor, sit down there. I shall give you a plate, and you can say your word while you eat your breakfast. No, thank you. I am not hungry. Besides, what I have to say to you, as well as to madame, he bowed to Charlotte, who had just come in, is strictly private. I think I can guess your errand, said D'Argentan, who did not care for a tete-a-tete -tete conversation with the doctor. It's about the child, is it not? You're right, it is about the child. In that case, you can speak. 
These gentlemen know the circumstances, and my actions are always too loyal and too disinterested for me to fear the light of day. But my dear, Shalott ventured to say, shocked for many reasons at the idea of this discussion before strangers. You can speak, doctor, said D'Argenton coldly. Standing upright in front of the table, the doctor began. Jack has just told me that you intend to send him as an apprentice to the ironworks at Indre. Is this serious? Come. Quite serious, my doctor. Take care, pursued Monsieur Rivals, restraining his anger. That child has not been brought up for so hard a life. At a growing age, you are going to throw him out of his element into new surroundings, a new atmosphere. His health, his life are involved. He has none of the requisites needed to bear this. He is not strong enough. Oh, allow me, my dear colleague, put in Dr. Hirsch solemnly. Monsieur Raval shrugged his shoulders and, without even looking at him, went on. It is I who tell you so, madame. He pointedly addressed himself to Charlotte, who was singularly embarrassed by this appeal to her repressed feelings. Your child cannot possibly endure a life of this sort. You surely know him, you who are his mother. You know that his nature is a refined and delicate one and that it will be unable to resist fatigue. And here I only speak of the physical pain. But do you not know what terrible sufferings a child so well gifted, with a mind so capable and ready to receive all kinds of knowledge, will feel in the forced inaction the death of intellectual faculties to which you are about to condemn him? You are mistaken, doctor, said D'Argenton, who is getting very angry. I know the fellow better than anyone. I have tried him. He is only fit for manual labor. His aptitudes lie there, and there only. And it is when I furnish him with the means of developing his aptitudes, when I put into his hands a magnificent profession, that instead of thanking me, my fine gentleman goes off complaining to strangers, seeking protectors outside of his own home. Jack was going to protest. His friend, however, saved him the trouble. He did not come to complain. He only informed me of your decision, and I said to him what I now repeat to him before you all. Jack, my child, do not let them do it. Throw yourself into the arms of your parents, of your mother who loves you, of your mother's husband who, for her sake, must love you. Entreat them, implore them, ask them what you have done to deserve to be thus degraded, to be made lower than themselves. Doctor, exclaimed Labassan, bringing his fist heavily down upon the table, making it tremble and shake. The tool does not degrade the man. It ennobles him. The tool is the regenerator of mankind. Christ handled the plane when he was ten years of age. That is indeed true, said Charlotte, who at once conjured up the vision of her little Jack dressed for the procession of the Fete Dieu as the child Jesus, armed with a little plane. Don't be taken in by such balderdash, madame, said the exasperated doctor. To make a workman of your son is to separate him from you forever. If you were to send him to the other end of the world, he could not be further from your mind, from your heart, for you would have, in this case, means of drawing together again, whereas social distances are irremediable. You will see. The day will come when you will be ashamed of your child 
when you will find his hands rough, his language coarse, his sentiments totally different from yours. He will stand one day before you, before his mother, as before a stranger of higher rank than himself, not only humbled, but degraded. Jack, who had hitherto not uttered a word, but had listened attentively from a corner near the sideboard, was suddenly alarmed at the idea of any possible disaffection springing up between his mother and himself. He advanced into the middle of the room and steadying his voice. I will not be a workman, he said in a determined manner. Oh, Jack, murmured Charlotte, faltering. This time it was D'Argenton who spoke. Oh, really, you will not be a workman. Look at this fine gentleman who will or who will not accept a thing that I have decided. You will not be a workman, eh? But you are quite willing to be clothed, fed, and amused. Well, I solemnly declare that I have had enough of you, you horrid little parasite, and that if you do not choose to work, I, for my part, refuse to be any longer your victim. He stopped abruptly, and passing from his mad rage to the chilly manner which was habitual to him. Go up to your room, he said. I will consider what remains to be done. What remains to be done, my dear D'Argenton, I will soon tell you. But Jack did not hear the end of Monsieur Raval's phrase. D'Argenton, with a shove, having thrust him out. The noise of the discussion reached him in his room, like the various parts in a great orchestra. He distinguished and recognized all the voices, but they melted one into another, united by their resonance, and made a discordant uproar, through which some bits of phrases were also intelligible. It is an infamous lie. Monsieur, monsieur, life is not a romance. Sacred blouse, via, via. A last old Raval's voice could be heard thundering as he crossed the threshold. May I be hanged if ever I put my foot in your house again. Then the door was violently slammed and a great silence fell in the dining room, broken only by the clatter of knives and forks. They were breakfasting. You wish to degrade him, to make him something lower than yourself? The child remembered that phrase, and he felt that this was indeed his enemy's intention. Well, no, a thousand times no. He would not be a workman. The door opened, and his mother came in. She had cried a great deal, and had shed real tears, tears such as furrow the cheek. For the first time, a mother showed herself in that pretty woman's face, an afflicted and sorrowing mother. Listen to me, Jack, she said, striving to appear severe. I must speak very seriously to you. You have made me very unhappy by putting yourself in open rebellion against your real friends and by refusing to accept the situation they offer you. I am well aware that there is in the new existence. While she spoke, she carefully avoided meeting the child's eyes, for they had such an expression of desperate grief and heartfelt reproach that she would not have been able to resist their appeal. That there is, in the new existence we have chosen for you, an apparent inconsistency with the life that you have hitherto been leading. I confess that I was myself at first rather startled by it. But you heard, did you not, what was said to you? The position of a workman is no longer what it used to be. Oh no, not at all the same thing. Not at all. You must know that the time of the working man has now come. The middle classes have had their day. The aristocracy likewise. Although, I must say, the aristocracy. Moreover, 
is it not more natural at your age to allow yourself to be guided by those who love you and who are experienced? A sob from the child interrupted her. Then you too send me away. You too send me away. This time the mother could no longer resist. She took him in her arms, clasped him passionately to her heart. I send you away? How can you imagine such a thing? Is it possible? Come, be calm. Don't tremble and give way like that. You know how I love you and how, if it only depended on me, we would never leave each other. But we must be reasonable and think a little of the future. Alas, the future is already dark enough for us. And in one of those outbursts of words that she still had sometimes when freed from the presence of the master, she endeavored to explain to Jack with all kinds of hesitations and reticences the irregularity of their position. You see, my darling, you are still very young. There are many things you cannot understand. Some day, when you are older, I will reveal to you the secret of your birth. Quite a romance, my dear. Some day I will tell you the name of your father and the unheard of fatality of which your mother and yourself have been the victims. But for the present, what you must know and thoroughly comprehend is that nothing here belongs to us, my poor child, and that we are absolutely dependent on him. How can I therefore oppose your departure, especially when I know that he wants you to leave for your good? I cannot ask him for anything more. He has already done so much for us. Besides, he is not rich, and this terrible artistic career is so expensive. He could not undertake the expense of your education. What will become of me between you two? We must come to a decision. Remember that it was a profession you were being given. Would you not be proud of being independent, of gaining your own livelihood, of being your own master? She saw at once, by the flash in the child's eye, that she had struck home, and in a low tone, in the caressing, coaxing voice of a mother, she murmured, Do it for my sake, Jack, will you? Put yourself in a position that will enable you soon to gain your livelihood. Who knows if some day I may not be obliged myself to have recourse to you as my only protector, my only friend. Did she really think what she said? Was it a presentiment? One of those sudden glimpses into the future which unfold to us our destiny and reveal the failure and disappointments of her existence? Or had she been merely carried away in the whirlwind words of her impulsive sentimentality. In any case, she could not have found a better argument to convince that little generous spirit. The effect was instantaneous. The idea that his mother might want him, that he could help her by his work, suddenly decided him. He looked her straight in the face. Swear that you will always love me, that you will never be ashamed of me when my hands are blackened. If I shall love you, my Jack, her only answer was to cover him with kisses, hiding her agitation and her remorse under her passionate embraces. But from that moment, the wretched woman knew remorse, knew it for the rest of her life, and could never think of her child without feeling a stab in her heart. He, however, as though he understood all the shame, uncertainty, and terror concealed under these caresses, dashed towards the stairs to avoid dwelling on it. Come, Mama, let us go down. I'm going to tell him I accept his offer. Downstairs, the failures were still at table. 
they were all struck by the grave and determined look on Jack's face. I beg your pardon, he said to Darchanton. I did wrong in refusing your proposal. I now accept it, and thank you. End of section 17.